This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you for a nice turnout. Um, it's uh makes me feel good uh, to know that, as he said, the topic that I'm going to discuss, uh, which is a head-scratcher still to me, uh, is indeed, can be controversial. Um, and I hope that um, after my talk, it won't be controversial anymore. Because <laughs> uh, I'm going to go through just sort of the, the facts um, that exist. I'm also going to talk a little bit, a little bit about uh, the way that the things that we're looking at, some of the things we're looking at at UC San Diego to answer um, the question, which is one of the ones that's um, still is it remains controversial, which is, okay, I think most people are realizing it's getting warmer. I don't think too many people argue about that, and I'll talk about this more towards the end. But how do we know it's us? And so I will talk quite a bit about ways that we're trying to um, to figure that out. Uh, so, as I say, I'm, I'm really um, deeply honored that everybody's here um, to hear about things, and I will do my best, uh, but uh, I'm going to try and tell you a story from the beginning of like where we are, where we're going, how we know, and then what the heck are we going to do about it. So, I will start with uh, the first uh, elephant in the room, which is that um, the hottest years on record have all occurred in basically, except for one, 1998, have occurred in this century. Uh, the, la the last five have been the last hottest. Let's change that as of today. I don't know if you saw the news. It's now the last six have been the, the hottest because uh, 2019 just got reported today as being the second hottest on record here or globally. Um, it's the hottest uh, in Europe, and you can see a lot of the um, ramifications of that as well. So the Earth has a fever, as I describe it. It's sort of like your body. There's a great analogy. We all have a very narrow temperature range in which we operate, and we operate well, and our, our bodies are happy. And then when we start to deviate, you know, you get to about 100, you start to not feel so good. You get to 101, you start to feel worse, keep going certain systems start to fail. And it's not always predictable which systems they will be. And the same thing holds for the Earth. The Earth is trying desperately, Mother Nature in particular, microbes, which have become one of my favorite topics, which I hope we can talk about at the end. I'm becoming a microbiologist when I'm really a chemist. But one of the things I'm learning is you have to know about everything to go after this problem. So we're all trying as fast as we can to learn all the stuff that's important. But basically, Mother Nature is not happy right now. And she's trying to tell us in many ways. And so, so Mother Nature is um, quite unhappy right now. And there's many ways that she's trying to tell us. And it really kind of depends on where you live. Um, I know personally, I haven't quite been impacted by any of these, but I know a number of people who have. And it comes down to either there's a lot of places that are getting a lot more flooding, there's either too much water or not enough water. We're starting to see signs of what happens with drought. In addition to not having water, we have wildfires everywhere, which I will, will talk more about. Um, and so basically, you know, we're seeing hurricanes, huge hurricanes, extreme hurricanes, multiple hurricanes over oceans where there have never been hurricanes before. And this is, this is the, the concern, is that when things get to an unstable um, place, that things that we honestly 
didn't quite predict. Some people would say they did some of these, but not all of these. And so one of the questions that I get asked a lot is, you know, is that storm? Is that hurricane? Is that flooding that you're seeing in Houston or wherever? Is that due to climate change? And one thing that I always say is I can't answer that about any one event. What we look for as climate scientists, weather is about a daily or hourly type of fact. Climate is for much longer periods. And so what we're looking for in climate change is the trends and the trends in multiple events that are happening. And when we do that, we look at billion dollar disasters just in the U.S. alone. This is what we get. And I think everybody in this room can see it's trending up. Right. And so, you know, it's just continuing to sort of ramp up. It started taking off around 2010, which happens to be when things got into this really super hot regime. And so now it's just continuing to march up. And every day, I think there was a couple of more reports of flooding today in different parts of the world. We've got fires, as I'll talk about. And so you step back and you think, what is this telling us? You know, why is our climate changing so fast? And this isn't rocket science. This is just straightforward math. This is our population for the last 10,000 years. And we kind of have gone kind of wild. And so, you know, 7.7 billion in 2019, it's actually, we can round up, it's 7.8 billion now. 7.5, 7.7, 7.8, yeah, 7.8 billion at this point. And so, basically, you take all these people, and they got to live, they have to eat, they have to create, they have to use energy. And so when you do that, you pump pollution out into the air. And I'm an atmospheric chemist. And so the question, I talk to kindergartners, I talk to anyone who will listen to me about this topic. People see me coming in the grocery store like, oh, here she comes again. And so, you know, where does this go? When we put this pollution out into the atmosphere, where does it go? And I think a big chunk of society thinks that when it's released into the atmosphere, it's gone forever right? You don't see it, mostly, right? And so I ask kindergartners, when you pump pollution into the air, does it disappear? Does it just go to outer space? And they go, no. You know, they get it, right? It doesn't disappear. There's this little thin layer called the troposphere down where we live. And there's a cap that sits on top of it. And if you've flown in airplanes, you see that. You see all the clouds are in the troposphere, all the weather's in the troposphere, all the pollution's in the troposphere. There's a lid, on the troposphere. And so as we release more and more pollution into the atmosphere, it just builds up over time. It does not escape into outer space. And so we have to think about, you know, certain, there's different types of air pollution. This is another sort of common misconception. We know that if there's like wildfires and then it rains, the air suddenly looks really clear. We go, oh, you know, I think a lot of people are fooling themselves thinking that when we finally decide the climate change is just, we can't live with it anymore. We're just going to stop emitting. We're going to hit rewind, and we're going to go back to the good old days. And the answer is that that's not going to happen. It doesn't work like that. It works like that for regular pollution. It works like that for something like ozone, the pollution that you see, the air pollution you see in the middle of a city. And that's because those species react away. They convert to something else. They go away. Chemistry happens. They're gone. They are removed very quickly. They live for out. Some things only live for seconds, hours, days, weeks, at most. But if you think about something like CO2 or other greenhouse gases like methane or nitrous oxide, they can live in the atmosphere for thousands of years. So 
One thing, point that a lot of people, I'm curious how many people in this room know, don't know, is that the effects we're feeling right now, the unprecedented rate of change. In the past, in the past we've had these warm temperatures, but it took us 5,000 years to get there. We just did this in 100 years. And the effects that we're feeling are from what was put out 100 years ago. Think about that. Now we're putting out even more. So what's going to happen in the future? And that's kind of a scary question. And so if we, we don't want to be scared, and you will, I will do my best to be optimistic. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing here. I'd be home relaxing, right? Because I have to, we have to remain optimistic. We will turn this around. But we'll talk about the challenges, and I will love the conversation of what people are thinking that we, we aren't doing something more than we are doing right now. And so given that these pollutants build up over time, what happens? What's the simple, why do we call it the greenhouse gases, and why do we call it a greenhouse effect? Well, here's your analogy. The sun pumps in lots of energy. It goes in, and in the greenhouse, it goes in, it gets absorbed, it gets re-emitted as heat. And that heat rises, but it can't get back out through the glass. And so the greenhouse warms up. Same thing happens if you think about it when you're, you leave your car on a warm day, on a cold day, right? Sometimes you get back in your car and your car is really warm, but it's freezing outside. Same thing, right? It traps. Some of this heat gets trapped. And so basically this is what happens in a greenhouse where so the heating just builds up over time. The more gases, the more things you put in there, the thicker the blanket becomes, the more heating you get. So you look at the trends in methane, nitrous oxide. This is CO2 over the last, since like basically a little over 1,000 years. And you see that you know, there's variability, but we were down below 300 ppm, which is not that much, but it has a huge effect. And then it just took off. And it took off right when humans started, when the Industrial Revolution took off. And if you plot the same plot for methane, nitrous oxide, the numbers, the amount is different. But the trends are exactly the same. They all took off at the same time. And these gases are the ones I told you don't react. They don't go away. They just accumulate. So now you think back to this greenhouse gas effect, and you think about it being trapped. There's, on the right-hand side, I show that. And that's what's trapping. Those gases are great. They are very, very good at absorbing the heat that's coming back out of the Earth. Okay? And so basically, they don't let it go back into space like it would have gone before. A little bit of a greenhouse gas effect is a good thing. We wouldn't be living on this planet if it wasn't there. But now we've added all these extra gases and we've thickened that blanket and the warming is tremendous. And so it's not the same everywhere. You'll hear me call it climate change a lot more than you'll hear me call it global warming because I think global warming has led to a lot of confusion. But it's pretty darn warm. And this is right now. This is a figure from like the last couple of days. And there's a pretty big gradient right now of where it's really warm. And you look down at that really deep, deep. That's not a mistake. Do people know where that is? It's Australia. Yeah, they're feeling it. And they, they were people that, there were quite a few people there that were doubting climate is happening, change is happening. I don't think they are anymore. Um, I don't know. But basically, they are getting hammered by the high temperatures, the drought, the high winds. All of the conditions are stacking up clearly against them. It's a very, very sad time for people living in Australia right now. And I hope, we hope, you know, we're trying, sort of, trying to help sort of avoid anything like this happening to our own uh, part of the planet. But one thing I want to point out, it's just kind of a little tidbit of information. It's a little more detailed than I go into in the rest of my talk, but I have to do it. Because a lot of times people will talk about 
you know, we don't always predict what's going to happen. We don't know how much warmer it's going to be. And that's true because there's these little, we talked about, is it humans or is it nature? You know, and there's also these little things called feedbacks, which are amplifications that happen that we didn't necessarily predict. So what's happening in Australia right now that's really hurting them and why there are extra fires is basically uh, they're making their own weather at this point. So they're putting up so much smoke. Turns out aerosols, which I'll talk more about, which are my living, is studying these little particles that are in the atmosphere that are in smoke. Those make clouds. And so when you put a lot of clouds or too many seeds into the clouds, you start to create your own clouds, your own weather, and these huge storms. And you are putting so many seeds and you're changing things so rapidly that there's this big gradient that sets up in terms of temperature and the other sort of meteorological parameters. And so what ends up happening is you create lightning. And so lightning strikes are blasting all over Australia right now and starting extra fires. And so this is one of the examples of something that we didn't necessarily think about, um, but when it gets really, uh, where it gets to the point where you're putting so much pollution up, in the case of these fires, you start to see things like this happening. All right. So I mentioned that I want to talk about how we know it's humans. And you think about this. This is a great figure that just shows sort of the change in temperature versus time since 1900. And basically what you see is there's natural variability. It's not just humans. Humans right now are just overwhelming the system. But you see this tremendous variability, and then all of a sudden it takes off, as we've talked about. And so black is, the black line is observations, and you see it takes off. And if you look at the models, which have these different factors in them of different what's affecting things, you can see that the models in purple track the observations when you include humans and nature. If you only include nature, which a lot of people try to say, oh, it's just, this is just part of the cycle, it's green. It's not where we are, and it doesn't describe it. So this is one of the best examples of you know, how we can actually start to understand that at this point, that rise is due to us. And so getting a little bit into the research that we do, we study, and a lot of my group is here, which I'm excited to see. Um, but basically, we study aerosols. These are aerosols. We're all connected. This is a global problem. You release aerosols on one side of the globe, and it takes about two weeks for the air to go all the way around. And they seed clouds. Some of our favorite things, we fly through these storm systems, as I'll talk about in a bit. We look at sort of how they affect. You can see where they swirl into weather systems and affect. They can, lead to, they can enhance hurricanes. They can slow down hurricanes. But the aerosols are seeding those storms. They seed the clouds that lead to the storms. They have a huge effect on our weather and where the water falls. So this, I mentioned that there's a lot more flooding in some places, a lot more drought in other places. We think it's because, because the temperatures are changing, there's all these weird flow patterns that are changing in the ocean and in the atmosphere. What's happening is it's shifting. Where all the storms used to go, they're not going there anymore. They're going to other places. And so the water's coming down in places where it never came down before. And if a lot falls in one place, it leads to extreme water falling in places. There's not any more to fall, fall somewhere else. So we think that it has a lot to do with what's actually seeding the clouds and the circulation patterns that are changing. So aerosols, there's all kinds of examples, viruses, bacteria, soot, smoke, sea spray, salt, all those things, dust. Those are very, very common forms of aerosols. They are what we can thank for our beautiful sunsets that we see. They scatter light, and when it's really polluted out on that horizon... You can thank the aerosols for those beautiful sunsets. And so basically, this is sort of what we look at. One of our big discoveries in my group 
was we actually fly, I mentioned we fly through the clouds. I'm not going into it in any detail here, but we went flew through the clouds for the first time and said, okay, depending on what seeds the cloud, does that affect whether it rains or snows or does nothing? Never been answered before. And when we did that, we thought that, it turns out that if you put too many seeds into a cloud, you can actually turn off rainfall in those areas. So we thought, okay, in California, the snowpack in the Sierras is going down. That's our water storage, right, for the states. This is a serious issue. So we flew through those clouds, and what we found was it wasn't us. It was dust and bacteria all the way from Africa, 12,000 miles away, led to 60% more snow at the ground. It took a long time to get this paper published because people thought we were crazy. But basically, this was a huge, huge discovery. But it really started to drive home the point that we can affect, you know, that this is a global problem. This is an international problem. There's no time. There's no room for finger pointing at this point. We're all affecting each other. And so we can, we, we've been looking at this more and more. But one of the things that we did notice was this is an interesting, looks like an interesting way that Mother Nature is maybe controlling where that water falls. These bacteria, these, ma these microbes, turn out they make tremendous amounts of ice in those clouds. And if you get ice in the cloud, that's the magic ingredient. Once you get ice in a cloud, you get tremendous downpour. And so we started thinking about, what, you know, if they're not there, days when they aren't there, days when the dust isn't there, there was nothing that fell on the ground. And so there's something magical about these microbes and this dust that actually can form ice at relatively warm temperatures. And so we started thinking about what is it? You know, this was, work was highlighted on the cover of Discover. People went crazy. They're like, these microbes, they're still alive. And so, you know, this is a way that things can hop from one planet or from one planet, one planet to another. They do to that too, but we're going to stick here. Um, but how they can hop from one continent to another. And so I became deeply interested in microbes in, right sort of after this point because they were doing something very, very special. This is what people use to make the snowmax in ski resorts is bacteria. And so you can just basically, they're up there, they're alive, they will sort of die as they're floating around the atmosphere, but when they get back and they hit moisture, they turn back on again. And they are totally having a huge effect on our planet. And so... What basically after this, we started thinking, okay, how can we study the microbes and where they're coming from? People knew, we know a lot more about the microbes that come from soil than we do from the ocean. And so basically we know hardly anything about the ocean because even though the ocean covers almost three quarters of the earth, we, there's nowhere we can go. Remember that, that figure showing everything swirling around? There, everywhere you go, there's pollution from land and humans. And so how do you figure out what's just coming out of the ocean? So we proposed CASE, which I, has been going for now, well, with the pre-part, it's been going for nine years. But it's the National Science Foundation Center for Aerosol Impacts on Chemistry of the Environment. This is a, the team. It's centered here at UC San Diego. Um, and then it has 10 other, well, now it has many other collaborators. Um, but basically, um, it's a large center. It's 10 years for the big funding. It was $40 million for 10 years. And basically, the question that we said was, we said, look, I've been doing field studies. I had been doing field studies for 20 years, out on ships, in airplanes. And you take what you get. You go out, you measure things, and you try to make a story, OK? But you never feel completely satisfied, because you take whatever's delivered to you, and you make the best story you can for that little two-week snapshot. So what we realized was the ocean, if we care about natural effects, the ocean is something we should really be thinking about. So we said, we told NSF, 
you give us $20 million at the time, first $20 million, we're going to move the ocean atmosphere into the lab. With all the biology, microbiology, we're going to get the real breaking waves, we're going to get the real bubbles. We worked with oceanographers, we worked with microbiologists. We put every, everybody came together and we said, we're going to do this in the lab. And they believed us, and they gave us the money. So you think about this, and uh, thankfully, and I wouldn't be talking about it if it didn't work, so we'll just give you the punchline. But it worked, and it worked really well. And so basically, the grand challenge we faced, and you're going to think about me when you take your Sunday morning walk on the beach after this, so I'll just warn you. Um, so the grand challenge is what comes out of the ocean. And most people think it's this wonderful salts, right? Just breathe in those salts. Mm-mm. So, you know, we, we've talked about the ocean being a very, it's a forest. It gives us 50 to 85% of the oxygen we breathe. Tons of biology. So there's viruses, there's bacteria, there's proteins, lipids, phytoplankton, all the parts of life are in there. And guess what? Those molecules and those bacteria, they don't really like water. So what happens is they sit on top of the surface of the ocean, and when waves crash, bubbles go down, and then they come out, and when those bubbles pop at the surface, you get this huge enrichment of life into the atmosphere. And it turns out that nobody had ever done this correctly. And this may sound crazy, but people, you know, stick those little fritz for like your aquarium into seawater, and you can make all kinds of spray, but it's not the right stuff. We wanted to look at like what really gets out and try to understand why it gets out and the effect that it has both on the health of our planet as well as our health, as I'll talk just a little bit about towards the end. So we basically said, this is what we're going to do in the lab. We're also going to think about how different the ocean is in different places. And it's because you get phytoplankton blooms sometimes in some places and not in others. This shows chlorophyll, which is the indicator for phytoplankton globally, a global shot. You can see it from satellites. And everybody focused on phytoplankton. And because that's where there's a lot of this biological stuff happening. And so basically, one of the thoughts, this is the Gaia hypothesis. I don't know how many people have heard of that. But basically, the idea is that the ocean can actually serve as a planetary thermostat. It can actually emit more cloud seeds and make brighter and whiter clouds and cool things off if things get too bad, right? And so it can basically warm things or cool things depending on what the biology puts into the atmosphere. And so this has been out there, floating out there for several decades, and it's very controversial. Some people say, yep, in an area of biology, clouds are completely different. Some people say, nope. We don't see it. And so it's pretty highly debated. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you can't isolate the ocean in the real world. I'm not going to go into the details in this talk, but we did that. And we got blooms in the lab in 3,800 gallons of seawater. And we were able to actually start to understand that it's not just the phytoplankton. I'll give you the punchline, and we can talk more about it later. It actually turns out it's the microbes. It's the bacteria. That those, they, as fast as the phytoplankton can excrete the goo the organics, the biology, the bacteria chew it up and convert it to a form that makes it out. And so it turns out that it's this competition and the biology is actually has a very interesting method to the madness of controlling what gets released into the atmosphere. But just to show you a, pic, a, a video of what it looks like in the lab, this is the H-Lab at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. This is our wave channel. It's uh, 33 meters long. We fill it with seawater. We actually have a little tap that you can turn on. We actually, my students are very, postdocs are very dedicated, and they go collect the water so we get the right microbes. Um, but basically, you can see that this was a study we did this past summer. What we did for the first about eight years was we just 
basically did biology. We just put in different microbes, we launched different blooms, and we looked at how much what comes out changed and whether that could explain some of the temperature changes that we were seeing. And what we found was the biology was, a lar was largely buffered. We couldn't get things to change. And one of my students, his thesis is five years of tons of blooms and trying to get things to budge in terms of the cloud forming potential of, these, of the spray wouldn't change. And so this last summer, uh, we had over 90 people came in. We do have a huge summer research program for undergrads that come in. And people come from all different institutions with all the measurements that you saw. This is usually an empty sort of, we had an open house and people came. And if you ever, we will do it again. When we do these big studies, people are invited and they love to come visit. It was actually really fun. But basically, what we did this time that was different was we said, okay, we've studied how biology, how nature changes things. But how, we wanted to answer this question, the title of the talk, how much and how fast are humans changing things? So what you didn't, I don't know if you can see, let me see if I can do this. If you look, you aren't going to see, on the, right, the far right, there's a bunch of stuff sitting on top. Those are reaction chambers. And so what we did was we took the, he the head space, the air above the, that's isolated, and we sent it into those vessels and reacted them. And then we restudied how those, how those changes would affect things. And we saw that with just a tiny bit of pollution, a tiny bit, a massive shift in the properties of what's coming out of the ocean. So humans are definitely having a very, this is like direct evidence that humans, it doesn't take a lot. You know, the very first little whiff of pollution that mixes with the air coming from the ocean, you get a lot more pollution in the end. And so I won't go too much more into this. I just wanted to point it out. It's a huge facility. It's a worldwide facility that people come from all over to, to measure this isolated ocean. The next step that's coming on, giving you a preview for this summer, is called SOARS. And this is going to be a huge facility. It's being built right now. Uh, actually, it's, it's going to start being built in March. It's supposed to be done, I'm told, by the end of the summer. But this is going to have winds. It's also going to have a big smog chamber integrated into the system. We're also going to be able to control the temperature of the water, the temperature of the air. We'll be able to make sea ice. So we'll be able to do different oceans. We'll be able to look at sort of the effects of hurricane winds. We'll be able to look at how this, this, this question of how humans and nature collide, basically. And so what we're thinking is it lets us think about the future in a way that we, maybe we can get a sneak peek before we're surprised down the road. We can think about pumping CO2 up to the levels we're thinking we're heading. Look at how that affects the ocean acidification, how that affects the biology, how that in turn affects what gets back out. We can sort of do these futuristic experiments to really start to understand the path we're on and what things we need to be thinking about to sort of change uh, if we can uh, before we get uh, too much further. So I say I'm happy to talk more about this in the conversation. I want to just sort of highlight a little bit of work. Helen Frick Fricker is a professor at Scripps also. She looks at ice sheets. And I was talking to her the other day, and I slipped this in after I talked to her because I just thought it was interesting from a public perspective because I found this interesting. So I have friends that study, go to the Antarctic and the Arctic, and there's a lot of people at Scripps that do this. And I'm kind of like, oh, you know, a lot of people, I think we think, like, oh, go to the Arctic, go to the Antarctic, and you know, protect the polar bears, right? And I'm worried about those polar bears. And so, but, but there's more to it than that. And I sort of hadn't thought it all the way through. And so if you look, this is Antarctic with the numbers correspond to the amount of ice that can melt and go into the ocean and give us sea level rise. And we got to remember, there's one ocean. We have a lot of names for them depending on where they are. But if that, that melts and goes into the ocean, 
then we are real. This is, this is starting to become a big, big concern. And you can see the plot in the middle shows the observations going sort of the ice is disappearing over time. This is land ice. Keep in mind, land ice is the ones we're worried about. The sea ice, we're not. It's like ice cubes already in your glass. If they melt, they're not gonna, it's not going to get higher. But the land ice, when it falls in, your cup flows over, right? And so it's the land ice that we're really concerned about. Helen is a superstar. Actually, just is the head PI, they just launched a new satellite that will allow them to do better measurements of this melting that's happening. So coming back to, you know, really climate change, I think one of the important things for people to think about, the ethical things to think about, is how to, I mean, sadly, we'll all be driven by how does this affect us? And so this just is a report that came out in, I think, 2017. Helen and Dan Kayan wrote it. This is looking at rising seas in California. Does anybody know how much our ocean has already risen in California since 1950? About that, six inches. Can you tell from your surfing? No. <laughs> six inches since 1950. Now, you hear that and you're like, that's not, you know, so the tide goes a little higher. You know, that's not that big a deal. What about when there's storms? What about when there's king tides? And that's what we're starting to see. Just from that six inches, this is Imperial Beach. This is a very uh, vulnerable area in San Diego, the most vulnerable, I would say. And that when you get these storm surges, you get massive amounts of flooding. You get massive amounts of water going into the streets and then washing all of that stuff back into the ocean. And so, you know, you can basically, taking those measurements that are being done very carefully in the Arctic and the Antarctic, you can, there are these probability maps of what, how much, how, what's it gonna, what, how high is the ocean gonna be by 2100? I hate to say it, but in these cases, this is where the science is just trying to get us in position to better adapt. How high does the seawall have to be? And I, you know, I don't, I'm not ready to throw in the towel, but I think we have to be thinking like that as well. And so, you know, basically it should be, it will be, there's a 95% probability it's going to be a foot or higher by the end of 21, by 2100. And it'll probably be a lot higher. I think it's like three feet is 33%. And so again, it doesn't sound like much, but when you get these huge tides, it's an issue. Sort of the last part of the science that I want to mention is work we're doing down in the Imperial Beach area that you'll be hearing more about. You should be reading about it probably in the papers soon. This is a study called Seaside. And basically, uh, this was work where we sort of piggybacked. The oceanographers put this dye. This is the Tijuana Estuary. How many people have visited the Tijuana Estuary? Okay. So basically, uh, the Tijuana Estuary has a lot of uh, sewage, raw sewage, that flows into it. And it starts on the Mexican, Mexico side and it flows into the California side, okay? And a lot of times it just can't keep up, especially during storms with processing things. And so you get massive amounts of sewage release into the ocean. So the oceanographers and people in San Diego County were very worried about where does that go? How far up and down the coast does that go? Who, can't, who shouldn't be swimming? Who shouldn't be surfing? And you've seen the signs when there's runoff, pollution runoff into the ocean, it'll say no swimming, no surfing. You haven't seen the sign that says no breathing yet, but basically we laugh. You won't laugh after I show you this. So basically what we did was we came along and we said, well, look at this work we're doing where we're seeing all these microbes getting into the air. 
The, this goo floats right on the surface of the ocean. There's tons of waves in the coastal zone. And so this is Charlotte, who's here with her baby, because we're trying to protect, and Matt, who's also here, um, that went out with the air samplers, and they went around San Diego County, and they looked for this very characteristic dye in the air samples that they collected. And guess what? It gets in the air, and it goes all over San Diego. So it's not just when you're walking on the beach. And actually, Daniel Petra, there's a number of people that have done the study are here, so this is great. But basically, and you can talk to them more afterwards too. But basically, people were surprised. I've done, I don't know, three congressional briefings on this because they're realizing this is a massive health effects issue. If you think about it, all the pathogens and toxins, as we get the ocean gets warmer, these things are getting transferred into the air where people can breathe them. And people haven't really thought that through. And so they are starting to think about it now. We are too. We're doing a huge study. I think it's launching on January 16th. Um, so a lot of the crew that will be going out, Brock, others are all getting ready to go. But we'll be out with our mobile lab. You can come visit any time. We'll be down at Imperial Beach. You may want to hold your breath. But... Um, You'll find the people with the masks. No, I'm just kidding. They actually don't. Maybe they should. But anyway, so that's the last little tidbit of like work that's ongoing at UC San Diego. So now, here's the ethical part. I thought hard about this. And first I looked at sort of where are we now in terms of who sort of understands and I like to say understands. I don't like to say believes in climate because that makes it sound like a religion or like Santa Claus. And it's not. It's science. It's hard, cold facts. It's math. It is, there is no, I, you know, it's like saying I, you know, somebody doesn't believe in gravity. I can jump and I won't come back to the ground. It's that extreme. And you see the numbers and people were happy. It went from 37 to 49%. Yahoo. And so I'm just like, ah, 49%. And as a scientist, we think about the ethics of this. As a scientist, I feel like we've kind of done our job. I give a lot of public lectures. We make a lot of measurements. We work really hard to find out what's going on and deliver that information, yet nothing's changing. It's coming down to the social choices that are being made. If you look at the comparison of climate scientists, what they say, it's actually people who actually study climate. There's studies that say it's even higher than that. The more you know about climate, it's closer to 100%. Um, versus what the American public says. How did this happen? You know, it's just really disheartening, you know, to sort of see this huge uh, divide. And I hope this is something we can talk more about. I didn't show a slide that I have. I'm happy to talk about. But if you look at how the media portrays it, it looks an awful lot like the right-hand side. And so um, it's just, I don't know, we'll talk about it. I'm going to leave this for a discussion. I was told to be provocative. Here's provocation number 10. Okay, so everybody talks about the weather, right? People love the weather. I even like the weather now. I never really cared, but I do. But I like climate even more. And so what percentage of people in the U.S. talk about climate? It's about 33%. And this is color-coded by the deviation from that average. And what you see is that the answer depends on where you live. Why is that? It also depends on your gender. It also depends on your political party. I mean, this is crazy. This is science. This is math. Like, this is fundamental laws of physics. But here we go. This is what we've got. So stepping back, why? Why do you think it matters where you live? Anybody have any ideas? I hinted at it earlier. I'll give you the answer. Somebody want to say? Education. Nope. 
There's educated people on the East Coast, I heard. <laughs> I'm going to get myself in trouble tonight. I can just feel it. Yeah, it's exactly right. People who live in regions that have been hit hard talk about it. How about that? Yeah, no, you're right. There's certain, there's certain places, you're right. No, Florida, that's funny. Florida, look at Florida. We have people from Florida here. And Florida, it's split. It's interesting. Half of Florida does talk about it, and half of Florida doesn't. And there's another one that's the same as that. Um, there's another state that's impacted heavily. That might be Louisiana. Maybe it's Texas that's also got this divide, right? And so you look, it has a lot to do, not everything, obviously. Thank you, Sandy. Um, it has a lot to do with what you've been hit with. I mean, I could ask, I mean, how many people know someone that's, I know someone who's had a house burned down. I know someone who's lost a house that's been flooded. I know, like, it's starting to get to the point where I know a lot of people. It hasn't happened to me yet, but I'm, it's getting closer, right? And so I think this is one thing. But my point is, I don't think we better wait until the map turns, you know, the color where we're all talking about it. Because that might be a little, little not, not productive, shall we say. All right. So the question is, the ethical question is, how can we preserve our planet so future generations can enjoy what we have? I mean, I can tell you, I was raised a nature lover. Birds, plants, bird books, fish. We lived outside. And I go to the tide pools with my kids when I took them when they were really little. And you look in the tide pools, they don't look the same anymore. And that's not fair. And so we have to think about, you know, Greta comes along and she's saying people are dying and shame on you. So kids are starting to get pissed off, and I hope the kids in this audience are getting pissed off. They should be pissed off at us because we have used up resources like no tomorrow. So these are her Greta's simple messages that she... I was looking at what her simple messages are. When you give public lectures, it's good to have a few simple messages. I have 82 tonight, but she's got these messages, so listen to Greta. My kids are here, Joey and Nico. And I'm embarrassing them with this picture. But they look like handsome dudes here. They're over there with their father. Um, they are the reason that I get up in the morning. And I draw, I, we work hard. My husband designs and builds my instruments. He's here too. We, get, we give everything we have to, to, to this problem. And so basically, we're thinking about what can we do. We can talk about it. Why do I take the time to come and give public, I give a lot of public lectures, and it's, you know, basically, I hope that by sort of giving out where we are, how we got there, that more people will talk about it. Our daily life choices, some people will say, ah, the government's messed up, we can't do anything. Why not? You don't have to wait for the government. When, since when do we wait for the government to tell us what to do? I mean, that would be nice, but I don't think we should wait, not right now. Um, and we need to think about voting, right? There's a big voice we have through voting in the right people that support and appreciate the nature around them. And so what do I do? What do we do? What does my group do who's here as well? This is the article that was in the UT, um, and it was a Q&A. And uh, you know, this is the picture that was um, taken. Nigella Hilgarth uh, took this, and I'll talk about how this all ties in in the next slide. But that's a picture of the breaking wave um, that we get this taken in the wave channel, in the ocean, in the lab. And so basically, the, we think about we can do a lot of the science, but we also need to work with the community. We need to work with you. And we work with the community a lot. One way, this Nigella was our first climate art fellow in collaboration with the Climate Science Alliance. And basically, she did all this beautiful photography, which is now going to various places. If you're interested, we are 
move, figuring out where it's going to move, but it will move around San Diego County. The pictures are there, and I have more if you actually, on the next slide, I can highlight them here. But she basically showed very visually the nature, the connections between biology and physics and chemistry and clouds and climate and the environment. They all come together in these beautiful images. And this is one way to sort of teach people, help people understand a little more about what we do. The other thing we think about is education. And there's a couple of teachers in the front row and maybe more. And I, we work with teachers. We do teacher workshops. We have a climate trunk. This is it, climate science and atmospheric chemistry. These trunks are at the Natural History Museum. Teachers can check them out. They have all the activities in them. They have science activities, art, and storytelling. And these hook kids. And we, I was first told, don't work with kids until they're like, fourth grade or sixth grade. No, 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 no. We're working with kids all the way down because you lose a lot. By fourth grade, a lot of them have already, especially the girls, have decided it's not for me. So when kids do these activities, their eyes are this big. They love it. They start to see it. And basically, this is Jeanette, who's actually here. She's doing some of the teacher training. That's cloud in a bottle. We show how clouds form. And so this is one other way that we actually um, get things out into the public through teacher training. We also are doing, um, creating an air quality network with sensors. The public can participate. Actually, we have one member of our audience who has, who has one at her house. And you can look at a map and see what the pollution is. It's called purple air sensors. We're going to put a, nearly 1,000 of these out. We're working with local tribes. They're going to put them out on, in places. We're going to put them out at the wildfire sites in the hills. We're putting them everywhere. And then you can see live what the air pollution is. And that just causes you to think a little bit more about the impacts that you're having um, on this planet. And the final thing we do is education. Is, and this is, <laughs> this is probably the most important part, is training people, students, to think about as many areas as they need to solve the problem, all the way from the solutions to the science, basically the science, I should say, to the solutions. They build the instruments. They make the sensors. Bottom line, they're fearless. They want to solve the problem. They care passionately about the problem, and they're gonna, they, we were trying to train people to think not just in that narrow box of, I'm in a chemistry department, which is important to have that fundamental training, but then you need to expand. You need to think about the director of the Data Science Institute here, Rajesh. You have to think about big data, how big data can help us solve these problems. You have to think about the engineering component. You have to think about the social sciences. Why are people not making the choices that it doesn't make any sense? So we're trying to sort of connect all the dots, and that's what needs to happen to solve this massive problem. And so, you know, this is, I, there's a million quotes out there that are pretty inspirational. This one kind of does it for me. It's one of the ones, there's many. But, you know, the natural world's changing. It, we rely on it. We're in this together. That's the quote they used from the newspaper article. We're all in this together. If we take care of nature, it will take care of us. That is the truth. It's not, we're not limited by the science and technology information anymore. We know enough to be making the changes now, yet we are not. And there is something ethically not good about that. So I like to remind people, there's no planet B. We're here. We're in this together. We need to all take care of each other globally. As I say, um, humans and nature, plants, the whole system is one. The oceans are one. The oceans and atmosphere are one. We all need to work together on this problem. And I look forward to having a discussion with you. And thank you very much.
I've got a bunch of questions, but I think that we've got so many people who have something. Let's just go to the audience and, and join us. So, Where will the microbes that are currently buried in the permafrost go when the permafrost melts? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, you know, microbes are amazing, you know, amazingly adaptive species. You know, they've been adapting for what, 3.6 billion years, something like that. So my answer is they will, the communities will change. Which microbes are there will change a lot when, that, when their habitat gets messed up. But there will still be, I think there will still be microbes on this, there will be microbes on this planet long after some of us are not. And so, I mean, I think you will shift things a lot. And, and what, what's interesting about that, that I should mention, and one of the things we're looking at, is microbes are not only highly adaptive, they're also highly communicative. They're talking all the time through chemistry. They're breathing. I call them chemical smoke signals. And they're releasing gases into the atmosphere all the time that are telling us whether they're happy, whether they're unhappy, whether they're stressed. You know, they're basically communicating all the time. That is shaping our atmosphere and our climate as well. So if you start changing the microbes so much you're going to modify the atmosphere and you're going to modify the climate. And you're going to start to change sort of all these feedbacks through a number of ways. But certainly as the permafrost melts, there's going to be major changes. There already are major changes as it's happening. This is implied, but I think part of her question was asking whether we should expect those microbes then to end up in the, the atmosphere. atmosphere. Is that what you were? Yeah. The way they get in the atmosphere is then they would have, that's what I'm thinking out, I was thinking about that, but I'm trying to figure out, they, the, the, the launching point is they have to get to somewhere where there's either high winds, which will get them into the atmosphere, or waves. And so if they're in sort of a quiescent region, they'll just be there and die, and you know, have a hard time, you know, they won't go into the air. But microbes, if, the, if you start to get into a region where the permafrost melts and things dry out, and you have winds, they can certainly get lofted into the atmosphere in that case. And will they end up in the ocean? Yeah, they can, they get moved. Once they get, anything gets in the atmosphere, it gets moved. It'll, you know, it's going to get, it can get everywhere at that point. And that question was, will they end up in yeah. the ocean? Yeah. So that, yeah, will they end up in the ocean? Yes. Okay, thanks. Two years ago in the New York Times, they had an article which said that 2100 may happen in 2040. Last year, New York Times, 2100, may happen in 2030. Your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. It's true. <laughs> and it keeps creeping up. It never, you know, the, the kind of, the, again, I try to be optimistic, but I'm waiting for the day when it goes the other direction. When it's like, you know, you look at the sea ice, for example, right? You look at a lot of the things that we observe and the, what the models predict. The models aren't keeping up with how fast it's melting. It's ma melting faster than we ever expected, right? And so everything we sort of, when we observe it, it's all happening faster than anyone predicted. I, I long for the day when it's the other direction, but I can't think of an example where that's the case, unfortunately. But you're absolutely right. It keeps changing, and it keeps getting closer. About two years ago, here at, in this event, uh, one of your colleagues was here, and I'm mortified I've forgotten his name, but he was, had done research where he isolated the genes that affected the production of suberin in plant roots. And 
he he felt that it was feasible, even based on that study, that you could increase carbon sequestration by a factor of 20 times, not 20%. Mm -hmm. And then if you had those kind of plants that uh, you could make a significant dent in the excess carbon dioxide. But I've never heard anything about it. I never hear people talk about it. It's me, it sounds like a brilliant solution, and I'm just sort of surprised that there's this silence about it. There's not a silence. Um, it's just people, I mean, because there is stuff that still comes out about this, in particular um, sort of planning urban cities and, and agricultural practices that pull things out. Um, we got to do that, right? There's so much up there. We're talking about not the one thing we have to do is we can't emit anymore. We have to stop the fossil fuels. We have to stop subsidizing those people. But we also have to get rid of a lot of what's already up there. And as you say, there are ways people are looking at to do that that are incredibly effective. And they got to keep going. The ocean will also do that. We're talking about can we, these are what are now referred to sometimes as a bad word, and I, I'll say it, but it's geoengineering. Talk about ethics. Um, you know, can we might make the right microbe communities that will do just that? The answer is we probably can if we understand the way they function. And then people say, but, but then you're modifying Mother Nature. Guess what? Thank you. Thank you. So we already are. But, you know, I feel uh, one of my colleagues is Mario Molina, who was the one that figured out the ozone hole issue. And he's my role model in that he took things from fundamental science all the way to solutions, and he's working with us now in the same way. But he always describes geoengineering as just having a plan B in your back pocket in case you need it, right? And so we need these kinds of solutions, but they're out there, and there's still papers coming out. It hasn't gone away. It's just not, we're not there yet. So behind that, there's a yep. political social question, yep. which is the fear that if you are working on all of these plan Bs, mm -hmm. then people will say, I don't have to worry as much. It's true. Now. So, it's true. It's true. So we have the climate change, what is it, Center for Climate Change Impacts and Adaptation at Scripps at UCSD. And, um, you know, it's all about adapting. It's all back to how, to, how do we build the seawall, right? I think we need to be doing all of these things, to be honest. Um, I would love to say that I think you know we'd have our heads pretty far in the sand if we weren't thinking about ways to adapt, to prepare. I think a lot of the science, quite honestly, the reason I'm doing a lot of the science is to understand the future and where we're going so we can prepare. Uh, because as, as I mentioned, we know enough already and we're still not doing enough. And so we don't need the science for, to figure out that we need to be doing something and we're not. So that's not the, my reason anyway as much. Uh, you say that these microbes and whatnot don't disappear. They don't. They don't. Okay. Let's work on how do you make a microbe disappear, okay? You, you just try to reverse the thing that, that hurts us, all right? We are hurt because the microbe doesn't disappear. Okay. Let's make them disappear, all right? How do you do that? Now, that's, a, that's conceptual, Maybe it's far-fetched, but what I'm talking about is a conceptual approach, a different conceptual approach, or an additional conceptual approach. If I could uh, jump in, I, I think what you're talking about, you could imagine a number of different scenarios, and I think they are being addressed. So if we're worried about microbes being spread in Imperial Beach yeah. and people are going to get infections from them, we have scientists who are working on better antibiotics, other treatments that might help counter that. 
you're worried about the planet warming, one of the plan Bs is so-called climate engineering, to basically try and cool the planet and find ways to do that to counter what's, what's going on. Now, any of those scenarios, though, it's not a magic bullet mm -hmm. because anything you choose to do may have unintended consequences yeah. that that's would issue. be problematic. No, that's the issue. That's a great point. Like any of these engineering, climate engineering solutions, you try to fix one thing and you create, an, like with the, for example, the, the ozone hole is a great example, right? They um, changed the CF, they got rid of CFCs. They replaced them with HCFCs. So they made the, basically these molecules that didn't last as long. And anyway, the ozone hole is going clo closed again, and that's a good thing. But these HCFCs that they used to fix the ozone hole are now leading to, climate, leading to more warming in climate change. So you're absolutely right. When you do these things and you go after fixing one thing, there's all these other unintended consequences. And there's lots of examples of that. So that's why we just have to, I, I just think that's where the basic fundamental understanding is so, so important. And we need to keep focusing on that. I think, you know, and I, I, another message I will tell you is that not all microbes are bad. Um, a lot of microbes are good. Living near the ocean and breathing that air could be good for you. We don't know. And so there's, you know, your gut is controlled by microbes. Lots of disease are now being linked with the microbiome inside of your body. And we also are working with Rob Knight at UCSD and others to try and understand what gives you that particular community in your gut. And living near the ocean, maybe it's a good thing. So I don't want to send the message that all microbes are bad to breathe. Maybe, they're, maybe we will all want to walk out to the beach. Um, probably not when the sewage is going into the ocean, but other times we would. So yeah, it's a, it's a really complicated system, but I think we are, we are making progress. I will say that um, being at UC San Diego, um, I'm happy to have people visit. You know, anytime our facilities, um, we have so many people working on so many facets and connecting the dots. It's, I can't imagine a better place to do it. So the good news is you've got people working on pretty much all facets of it and working together very hard right in your backyard. Um, so anyway, I just want to throw that um, point out there because that's the good news. That's a, a good segue to what I wanted to conclude with, which may be a disservice to the overall message, but it, it might be nice to sort of close on um, as optimistic of you, you can, as you can of, of where we are going and where the opportunities are so that people don't have to go home completely depressed. Yeah, I mean, I hope I didn't depress. I mean, I, I, say, I, I stay optimistic and I, you know, I try as hard as I can, except when I saw Al Gore. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, because it's just, because, yeah, it is sometimes overwhelming. I'm not going to I'm not going to say that, that, that it's not. Um, but I still am optimistic. I don't, I, I don't, I, I still think that if we under, work to understand really what's going on, which is where we're heading, we've learned so much. You know, our ocean and the lab approach seem kind of wild and crazy, but we've learned so much in five years that we didn't learn in 30 years. These things that people couldn't figure out, we did. And so there's a whole bunch of examples of just where we just took a it kind of is his point. You take approach and you turn it on its head and do it a different way, right? Don't keep beating your head into the same wall. That there is something to be said for that. Um, but I think one of the big hopeful things for me is that I am starting to see more people talking about it. You're all here. Um, and I'm starting to see more people work together across disciplines, as I mentioned. That's so important to solving the problem. So, you know, again, I think um, I work as hard as I can to remain optimistic. There are solutions. The science is getting done. Can we do more? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I saw this really good talk about, you know, this is, you know, we send people to the moon, for goodness sakes, right? We just, when we put our minds to something, we do it. We've done it. For some reason, we just haven't done it for this. If we do, we start getting better storage for energy, that's going to be a game changer. You start figuring out how to pull materials to pull it out of the air, another game changer. So there are things that are out there that I think people are on the brink of getting to work. Any one of those things will, you know, the optimism will be a step change to a good place, a better, much better place. And that's what keeps me hopeful and hopefully keeps you hopeful. So I hope that I've given, not overwhelmed you with negatives. I do feel positive. I hope you do. My plea to you is to just talk to people, get the conversation going, help people understand um, where we are and where we're going and that we're all in this together. That would be, makes my time worth coming out for all of you. So thank That's you. actually what I wanted to close on. With. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.